The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, Lloyd, today our show is about privacy engineering. And I have this wonderful book in front of me called Privacy Engineering by Ian Oliver. And let me tell you about our guest who's coming to us all the way from Finland. Dr. Ian Oliver is a security specialist with Nokia Networks working in cloud and 5G network technologies. Previously, he was a privacy officer and software engineer specializing in the construction of information systems with privacy as an inherent property with here. He also holds a research fellow position at the University of Brighton working with the Visual Modeling Group on Diagramic Forms of Reasoning. We're going to have to ask him what that's all about. And description logics with occasional foray into category theory. So you can see that we have a quite a bit to ask him about to understand what this is all about. Prior to that, as the privacy architect for Nokia Services and for 11 years at Nokia Research Center with the Semantic Web UML Formal Methods and Hardware Software Co-Design. He also worked at Helsinki University of Technology and Alto University teaching formal methods and modeling with UML. He holds 35 patents in areas such as the Internet of Things, semantic technologies, and privacy. And you can learn more about his book and him at privacyengineeringbook.net. And of course, if you go to KUCI.org slash privacypiracy, you'll see his photo, uh, a JPEG of his book, and you can link right to his website. So thank you so much for joining us all the way from Finland. How are you today, Ian? Well, hey, uh, thank you for having me on the show. Oh, great. So tell me, I don't know what some of these things are that I that I found out about. What is a, a visual modeling group? What what does that do? What do you do in the visual modeling, modeling group? Okay, the, the visual modeling group, uh, their, their remit is to, to develop actually languages that aren't actual in nature, but visual. So think of the good old Venn diagrams that you might have learned in, in school and applying those to classifying and categorizing information and basically understanding and modeling of information systems using these languages. And they have all sorts of um, interesting properties that textual languages uh, just don't, don't have. 
Yeah. Um, and, and the main thing here actually being is the fact that they are quite intuitive for anybody to read. And if you think of the sort of the diagrams that you might scroll on a blackboard or, or so, these are the sort of diagrams that they're interested in and giving these meaning. Wow, sounds like Albert Einstein. <laughs> okay, so so you're you are a an engineer, right? You are a technologist. Okay. You're not a lawyer. So how is it, you know, most of the engineers that I talk to, the technology engineers, are really into security, but they aren't as adept at privacy as you are. So tell us, how did you end up working in the privacy field? That's a good question. Um, almost by accident. Um, so I, I spent many years developing Internet of Things technologies, working with the semantic web. Uh, we spent a lot of time thinking how to classify information, how to structure information, and so on. And it, uh, it actually became a very natural move um, in, into privacy. So we were actually very uh, concentrated on the security of these systems and how the information would be manipulated, how the content of the information would be manipulated, how you would deal with locations, how you would share the information, and so on. Uh, so I... If, I pretty much accidentally fell into this area um, and, I, and found an area that was um, I, somewhat dominated by the legal and philosophical sides, uh, but had very, very little there in terms of hard engineering. Um, and with that sort of gap, you know, it became a very natural thing to do, and uh, it, it just became a very, very interesting area to explore and work with. And, and this is so wonderful because so often there was that disconnect between the security people and the privacy people. And, you know, as they say, you can have security without privacy, but you can't have privacy without security. And it's a, it's a real marriage that you have to have to really have it work, right? Uh, absolutely. And I think that this is something that's often forgotten. Um, you can have the most secure system in the world, um, but as soon as you get through that security, um, you, you get to the world data, which contains everything. And of course, when, when you have any system, you, you obviously want to interact with the information that's in there anyway. Right. Um, so take Facebook, for example. You can put as much security on that as you like, but at the end of the day, as a user to Facebook or Google or Gmail or whatever, you still need to get your information in and out. So you're still dealing with that content and sharing that content. So actually worrying about the what, what's actually inside that material, what it really means to yourself and to other parties, is the interesting thing. And that's quite a distinct area from security. Exactly, exactly. And I know in your book I noticed that you also talked about privacy by design, and we've had on Anne Kavukian, who I'm sure you know who she is, the... Um, commissioner of Ontario, Canada, who really kind of developed that that whole idea of privacy by design, and and just integrating into the architecture of of all the great technology that we're putting together, integrating the privacy issues. What really excited me when I saw that you know you're you're an expert in the Internet of Things. I think you know a lot of people don't even know what we're talking about with the Internet of Things. Like when your refrigerator talks to you, but maybe you could talk about a little bit about that because that to me is exciting and frightening at the same time. Want to kind of address that a little bit? 
Well, yeah, certainly. Well, I, I think after working with Internet of Things and Semantic Web for many years, um, I don't think there are any experts in this area. Um, I think there's a lot of people who know something about it, and I think it will probably be a few years before any of us get a real handle on what's going to happen in this area and how it's really going to work. Uh, but the example that you gave your refrigerator talking to your toaster or to your phone or whatever, uh, that's going to offer up huge information collection opportunities for... Uh, people such as Google um, or whoever else is in the market at that point in time. Yeah. And I think this is going to be uh, the, the major major thing that we have to worry about. What what are our devices telling us about ourselves? Yes. Um, so and I, I until have... we get a good idea of exactly what we want these things to say, um, the, the whole area of, in terms of privacy is, is really just going to be a big minefield. Yeah, and I keep thinking like, okay, so if my sub-zero refrigerator uh, wants to tell me that, you know, I'm out of orange juice, I mean, that's kind of cool. But if they're telling other people what I have in there and maybe that I have stuff that's fattening or something that's high cholesterol, then maybe my uh, health insurance company wants to charge me more. You know, so, I mean, how do we, how do we limit who has access? How do we, how do we, you know, and then there's the hackers that could get in there too. And, and, you know, even scarier is the internet of things when you're thinking about um, medicine. Let's say I had diabetes or something and I had the internet of things just so I don't have to take a, a, a shot somehow there's something embedded in my body that releases what needs to be released based on just communications between my body and some machine, right? I mean, isn't that all part of the Internet of Things? Indeed. I think that, you know, you're already opening up the the can of worms that this is. So level is who has access to this. Well, that's going to be more of a security issue. Then we the points about uh, what are devices uh, telling us and what are they telling other people. So, you know, if you do have your refrigerator that knows what's in it, um, does it go and accidentally leak this information to your insurance company and so on? Right. There's another point here is what happens if you press, um, I can imagine a refrigerator with a like button on it. You press the like button and it tells the contents of your refrigerator to Facebook. Right. Um, and who knows what you're keeping your refrigerator? You could have medicines in there, for example, and that then opens up the whole medical debate. And you've got things like HIPAA that actually might then have to start applying at a very personal level. But actually, for me, the one big issue of Internet of Things isn't actually the content of the refrigerators, but it's all the protocols and all the infrastructure that sits underneath. So your, fridge, your refrigerator will have an IP address. Um, and it's going to be communicating that with um, various endpoints. It's going to be communicating that with the supermarkets and so on. So they will actually happen to know where you are through technologies like geolocation. Right. Um, they will know features about your refrigerator. Uh, it'll, it'll, it's not just things of whether you have orange juice or whether you have medicines, but there's a huge stack of information that sits underneath. It is just the way the Internet works. Um, yes. And I think that's actually often forgotten from a lot of these discussions. Right, right. And and what I think is something else that, that is disturbing when we think about Al-Qaeda and, you know, all of these terrorists, when we think about the infrastructure, 
and the Internet of Things, you know, now we have a, a smart meter on our house, which I really didn't want to have. I was the last person on my block to finally agree to allow them to put it on. But, you know, when you have everything, the infrastructure so that our water, our uh, electric, um, all of our gas, right, all of that, it, you know, is also really being run by the Internet of Things, right? That's coming, too. Indeed. Um, in fact, in some ways, this is where we are a little bit fortunate in that the Internet was actually built with some form of uh, resilience and fault tolerance in mind, um, even though in a lot of cases it was, it was quite accidental. But you're absolutely right in the amount of information that's being pushed across the Internet in both encrypted and unencrypted forms that pretty much anybody could potentially get their hands on and then use in some uh, potentially malicious way. Yes, yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing, what we see what's going on in the world now, that I just would worry that, you know, with all the money that, um, you know, some of these terrorist organizations have, they can get a hold of equipment and, you know, get into our infrastructure or infrastructure in Europe where you are, you know. So um, it's, you know, I just wonder, are... (laughs) You know, I, I'm glad that you're on the good side, but are there are there real privacy and security engineers that can be brought to the dark side? <laughs> you know, that worries me. Well, I, I, I think with enough money and resources, uh, you can bring anybody to yeah. any side you wish. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, some of this actually might be by accident, too, through misguidance and so on. Um, and and it's also hard to say who the good and bad sides are. I mean, yeah. take the, if you look at the example of the refrigerator, if it does, uh, say, routinely broadcast the contents of your re- refrigerator, yeah. this might be good or, or bad from your point of view if your insurance company gets that. Now, are the insurance company the good or the bad guys in this? So you get into a very, very deep philosophical debate about... Um, Yes, it's good to share that. Um, and I, I, that, that's a conversation, of course, that we, we must be having continuously in this area. Yeah, and I think what's really good about the fact that you're a privacy engineer, besides being um, a brilliant uh, engineer, technology engineer, is that you can speak their language. I think often what would happen is, like you were talking about, there's privacy officers that are uh, attorneys, right? And they're not always technology people like me. And then we know enough to be dangerous, I think. (laughs) And then you've got, um, you know, security people that, you know, speak their language. And I think that the beauty is that you can you can uh, speak that both of those besides speaking English and Finnish and Swedish and French and all the languages that you speak. You also speak privacy as well as security, which is not something that a lot of technologists and technology engineers can do. Right. Okay. Well, that, that is actually been the big challenge. Uh, so when I first moved into this area, um, having an engineer, being an engineer and having engineers training meant that I was very, very comfortable using terms like software and architecture and design and programming and so on. And also then finding that you had lawyers, privacy lawyers and so on, who were also using the same terms. Uh, but in a very, very different way, possibly a much more abstract way. 
Um, so I actually spent an awful lot of time actually trying to work out what the different communi- the different communities really meaning and what they were trying to express when they were talking about this. And there were lots of examples where you had maybe the more uh, legalized educated people talking about uh, the transfer of data and information and meaning that to an engineer that we had to take in the whole stack of things, so the content, uh, the underlying protocols, the TCP stack, and, and so on, all the network data as well. And then having great difficulty also trying to translate this back. And so there's a lot of work around this area. And I, I, this has sort of come through in some of the work that I've done in the book where I've spent a lot of time trying to define the terms, uh, personally identifiable information or personal data. What do these terms really mean and so on? And I think one thing that we have to always remember is whether we're engineers or lawyers working in this area, and I think Lawrence yes. Lessig said this very well when he said code is law. Whatever we try and encode on a piece of paper and a piece of legislation in a policy, there is going to be some young programmer somewhere who's going to be writing some code in Python, C or Java or whatever, who's got to actually go and encode those things that we are trying to write down in law. So whatever we do in this field, it's always going to be in the programmer's hands at the end of the day. And unless we're going to communicate with those programmers, none of this is ever going to work. And that's my actually my greatest fear in this area, is that we get so wrapped up in privacy philosophy and the legal side and, say, the high-level engineering side, we actually forget about the guys who actually write the software at the end of the day. Right, right. And so let me just remind my audience that we're speaking with Ian Oliver, who is a privacy engineer, and he wrote this wonderful book that even I can understand, actually, because I've been reading it, and it's called Privacy Engineering. And I think you're trying to kind of help not just help everybody in the privacy field, in the security field, to kind of understand these major issues. So um, is is this something different from a privacy officer? Is a privacy engineer um, really kind of in between a software engineer and a privacy officer? I guess that's a, that's a good characterization of it. Um, I, I think wherever you sit on the spectrum from being a privacy lawyer, a privacy officer, a privacy engineer, or to, you know, or to be actually being a software engineer, you well, for the engineering front, obviously you need the engineering background. Um, I, I think to really progress in this area, we are going to need privacy officers with technical backgrounds. Uh, we are going to need lawyers with uh, some form of technical background. Yeah. So yeah. I, I, think it, I think it's rather, it's symptomatic of a maturing area that we are now starting to see many, many fine-grained divisions and specializations building it up in the area. And I think that's a very healthy thing, actually. Yeah. Oh, it's a growing field. You know, I belong to the International Association of Privacy Professionals, the IAPP. And the first year I went, which was, I don't know, maybe 12 years ago or whenever they started, there were maybe 50 people there. And now there's literally thousands from all over the world. We have to go to a bigger, or the, uh, the summit that's in D.C. I don't know if you're going, but it would be great if you would. Um, the summit that they have every March 
is their global summit. And, I mean, we have privacy officers from all over, but now we they've really reached out to the technologists and the security people. So when you take your certified information privacy professional, even when I took it like six or seven years ago, I had to study up on the security issues. You know, I had, to, which I think they're even doing more now, that the security people have to study the privacy stuff and the privacy people have to study the security stuff. So I think you're right. It's going in that direction. But um, I'm not ready to have 35 patents like you have. <laughs> now, let me ask you something. You talk in your book about um, developing a privacy program. What what should a privacy program really look like in a company? We have lots of companies that are driving by now. And so what what should they be thinking about in a privacy program? Oh, well, that, that, that's a fantastic question. Um, I think from the contents of the program, uh, I think the IAPP actually covers a lot of this work quite well. Um, there, there's a lot of uh, discussion about being very, very inclusive, bringing the lawyers, the engineers, and so on together. Actually, the main thing uh, is not so much the contents of the program, but the culture that you foster within your company. Uh, and it must be a culture where uh, there is a, a very, very deep respect between lawyers and the engineers. I mean, both sides, we have extremely difficult jobs to do, coupled with the fact that we probably don't understand each other's jobs at all. I mean, um, there's no way I could be a lawyer, um, and I know a lot of lawyers who wouldn't want to be engineers anyway. Um, you really need to work very, very hard on the culture. Um, you need to work um, on things such as your operating procedures. In, in fact, I mean, in the book, I actually talk a little bit about some of the experiences we had um, trying, to, trying to develop things many years ago in the engineering side. I'm realizing that we actually had to take ideas from safety-critical systems. We had to take ideas from aviation, uh, medicine, surgery, and so on, and get these, this kind of safety-oriented culture building up so it's not it's not really so much about the the technical side within the program, but really the culture that you build within the company. Yeah, and I know you talk about check checklists, like a sur a surgical safety checklist. Like, how, how does that work? Is that what you're talking about right now? You're talking about kind of having protocols that make sure that everything is done, and having these checklists to make sure that it's done. Uh, absolutely. I mean, we. We realize that this area is getting very, very complex. Um, there's a huge amount of things that you've got to worry about. Uh, and when you're in that kind of complex environment, you need some kind of structuring mechanism to, to ensure that you do all the legal and engineering due diligence. Now, there are well-known techniques. Checklists are possibly my favorite at the moment, um, although that's just the very pinnacle of a huge safety culture that exists underneath. And they've been very, very successful in aviation, for example. Uh, but it was, it's only really been in the past 15 years where we've seen that idea um, move into very agile environments, very chaotic environments, such as software engineering. Um, and possibly one of the biggest drivers in here, and this worked really, really well for us, and I have some slides on SlideShare that talk about this, is that 
the, the, the WHO, uh, led by a fantastic doctor by the name of Atul Gawande, uh, developed the surgical safety checklist, which is employed during surgery to make sure that the handover between different phases, um, the surgeons and all the staff have performed their due diligence. And that actually itself comes with a deep cultural change as well. So everyone becomes very, very focused on their job and the team. And it's getting these ideas into privacy that I think is really the key to driving the engineering and the legal side uh, forward into producing uh, privacy-compliant software. Yes. We have just about a couple minutes left, and I just wonder if you could give me, you know, you have um, a chapter at the end about enhance, privacy-enhancing techniques. Can you just for just a couple minutes give us a, a few tips on that, and then people who want to learn more for their own business or if they're a privacy officer listening, um, just give us a few tips about privacy-enhancing techniques. Well, there are a huge amount of techniques for anonymizing data and so on. The two main things that I'd want to bring up here is, one, always worry about what your data means. Um, identifiers aren't just uh, single fields. They can be combinations of fields. Um, if you hash data, you're not actually making it anonymous. You're just turning the identifier into a different form. Um, and and not, I think the biggest thing that always uh, gets me is when we talk about anonymization. Um, when we anonymize data, you're stripping out its meaning. Uh, but actually, I don't think there's, and unless you do an awful amount of work, you are rarely ever going to get anonymous data. And I, I think that's the main thing. There, there is no panacea. There is no one technique that you can apply. You need a whole suite of techniques. And while we're in the world of NoSQL and big data, we, we have to worry about what the data means, what the scanners are, what the semantics are, what is your data, and how does it all fit together. And if we forget that, we will never, ever be able to anonymize or process data in a privacy-compliant way. Yeah, that's a perfect way to end. So um, I, we've been talking with Ian Oliver, who wrote this wonderful book, Privacy Engineering. And Ian, why don't you give your website, and then it's time for us to go. Okay, the website is www.privacyengineeringbook.net. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you, Marie. And I have to start calling it privacy instead of privacy. It's wonderful to talk to you too, Ian. And it was great to meet you on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm so glad we got to talk on the phone. Hope to see you in D.C. as well. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, thank, thank you, Marie. Bye-bye now. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org. I'm the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. I'm Mari Frank, host of 
Privacy Piracy, which airs every Monday morning right here on KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also pleased to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And today we are so thrilled to welcome Deputy Michael Woodroffe, who is currently the school resource officer for the city of Dana Point. And he's been a deputy sheriff for 11 years. His primary duty is to the Dana Hills High School. However, he's also available to all schools within the city of Dana Point. So we're just thrilled to have him. Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Mari, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, why don't you tell us about that 3Gs, the Prescription for Life presentation that's going to be starting on tour um, October 6th at Dana Hills High School. Well, thank you, Mari. The Sheriff's Department wanted to approach the drug presentation platform differently than it has in the past. Instead of focusing slowly on the drug trends in our society, we really wanted to focus on the parent and their family environment. With the three Gs, our goal is to inspire the parent and update them with some useful parenting strategies on how to guide, guard, and govern their children through the challenges they and their children face in today's society. It's kind of similar to a career. Employees need to be updated and trained in order to remain proficient and effective in their ever-changing professions. And we felt likewise our 3G's presentation is designed to encourage and update parents on useful skills as well as the modern influences in order to protect their family unity, happiness, and their overall success. What a wonderful program. I think that's great. And it's so great that you're leading it as the as a fearless leader to help parents. So we will have you back again next week to talk a little bit more about it. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me, Marvie. Okay. Bye-bye, Michael. Bye-bye.